Thank you, Alison. Thank you, Ruth and Rachel and Tim, Johnny and Amy and Yarrow. How do you keep going whenever you're consistently up against it? Or how do you cope whenever the hassles and the headaches just keep coming? One of the, uh, the big lessons or the main insights that we're learning from rereading the book of Nehemiah together is that life with God and life for God is often accompanied by opposition and resistance. Nehemiah certainly discovered that, but his story and his experience, it's not unique. Every Christian is involved in a struggle. Scripture teaches us that we live out our faith in the context of a battle. And therefore, we're going to, or we should expect to face hostility and tension. Comes with the territory. But how do you handle it? How do you survive it? How do you get through it, especially whenever it rarely lets up? If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6, where Nehemiah is up against it. As Alison has said, he's up against it once again. Like, where does a guy go to get a break? And if you were here last week, I made the point that Nehemiah confronts one problem after another in virtually every chapter that we've read together. So he faced a personal problem in chapter 1 an employment problem in chapter 2, an admin and material problem in chapter 3, physical and psychological problems in chapter 4, and then last week he faced a huge economic and social problem. Well, as you start reading chapter 6, you quickly realize that trouble is brewing once more. Look at verse 1. The very first line of the chapter, look at this with me. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, and so immediately go, here we go again. The protagonists are back. Seconds out, round six. What is going to happen this time? Well, before you read the rest of the chapter, and before we stand and do that together, let let me finish verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. So here's the thing. The building project is virtually complete. The half-built walls are now fully constructed. The only thing left to do is hang doors. But what I find interesting is that the people, the individuals, Sanballat and co., who were there at the start, voicing off and creating problems, are still there at the end, causing bother and being a nuisance. Do you know... Some people never leave us alone. Some people are a constant thorn in your flesh, a massive pain in the butt. 
They almost appear to accompany us on our journey. They're round every corner, lobbing missiles and making life difficult for us. Has anyone got anybody in mind? Nehemiah had lots in mind. But three in particular. And they're back again. So let's stand and read chapter 6 and see what Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem are up to this time. And let's see how Nehemiah copes and how he attempts to keep going. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, Arab, and the rest of the enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should I stop the work here and leave and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his assistant to me with this same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are rebuilding or you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. Well, I sent them this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. And he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Grab a seat. As we, as we go through this, I really want you to make the connections between Nehemiah's story and our story, your story, because what he experienced, we probably will. And how he coped, we definitely should. So let's take a closer look. So at face value, that initial message from Sanballat and Geshem seems fairly positive, doesn't it? Conciliatory almost. 
Let us meet together. Come on, Nehemiah. Let's head out to this kind of retreat location in the desert called Ono, bit of an oasis, and let's talk. Sounded hopeful. Were they willing to dialogue? Maybe this is even the call to a new day, possible peace talks. Surely Nehemiah is going to give them a chance and he's going to go, but no. He sees through their deceit and he discerns the real motive behind the meeting. Look at the end again of verse 2. They were scheming to harm me. You see, Nehemiah is not gullible. Nehemiah is not naive. Only God knows how Nehemiah knew the danger, but he did, and so he declines their offer. And see if nothing else, this shows us that we need to be discerning. We need to be careful. We need to be alert because you know something? The enemy is subtle. He will come at you. He will come to you masquerading as an angel of light, disguised as an angel of light. He will come at you, to you, as a she- uh, wolf in sheep's clothing. He will seem so plausible, so friendly, so amenable. And you see, unless we, as individuals and as a church, are on our guard, he may deceive us. It's his intent to deceive the whole world, according to Revelation 12. It's one of his specialist schemes. And here in chapter 6, Nehemiah's enemies attempt to do just that. And they won't take no for an answer. They won't back down easily. Did you notice they persistently kept inviting him four times? They sent him the same message, trying to grind him down. See, trying to get him to cave in, to give in. But every time, Nehemiah stood firm and he gave the same answer, I'm going nowhere. And again, you know, this is part and parcel of the enemy's tactics, relentless temptation, constant pressure. And unless we're careful, unless we're prepared, unless we're properly kitted out in the armor of God, we risk giving in and walking headlong down a dark alley towards a hiding. And so many have. And for some of us here this morning, we we have said no to a particular invitation and a particular temptation. We've said no a number of times, but you know something? We need to be resolute because the enemy has got this habit of coming back at our hearts and our minds time and time again. Nehemiah's enemies still didn't let up. They send a message the fifth time, but on this occasion, they add another dimension. The messenger doesn't just bring the same message, he also carries an unsealed letter in his hand. Now, an unsealed letter means only one thing. What does it mean? Anyone can read it. And when you hear the contents of the letter, you can see why they didn't stick the envelope. Verses 6 and 7 record the contents of the letter. And it's a bare-faced attempt to discredit Nehemiah, to badmouth him. 
to spread gossip and publicize lies. The letter says that the Jews are plotting to revolt. Nehemiah is about to become their king, and he's planning this big song and dance, this big announcement in Jerusalem, all of which is complete nonsense. But you see, that doesn't matter. What matters is there's a story out there and people are going to begin to question Nehemiah's integrity and his character. And you see, if the enemy can do that, if the enemy can feed the rumor mill and fuel the gossip train, then maybe, maybe they will bring their target down. It's dirty tactics, but it's all too common and it's all too effective. Gossip is a deadly weapon. It's toxic. Listen to gossip speak. I have no respect for justice. I maim without killing. I break hearts and ruin lives. I am cunning and malicious, and I gather strength the older I am alive. The more I am quoted, the more I am believed. My victims are helpless. They cannot protect themselves against me because I have no face. To track me down is impossible. The harder you try, the more elusive I become. I topple governments. I wreck friendships. I ruin careers. I cause sleepless nights and heartaches. I make innocent people cry on their pillows. Even my name hisses. I am called gossip. I make headlines and headaches. I am nobody's friend. You see, gossip is toxic. And I wonder how many Christians and how many Christian leaders have been on the receiving end of it and rumors about them that are not true, lies that have been passed on and caused others to become suspicious of them and not to trust them any longer. And you see, we know that the ultimate enemy is the father of lies and therefore there's every chance that any one of us here will be on the sharp end of this line of his attack. An unsealed letter packed with untruths could have been Nehemiah's downfall, and you see it in our world of social media. It's far easier to wreck a person's reputation and discredit them by going public with a bit of juicy gossip, a few rumors, or a few half-truths. Nehemiah's response was quick. And it's direct. Look at verse 8 again. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. I love this line. You're just making it up out of your head. You see, Nehemiah issued a statement in order to quell the rumors and clamp down on the gossip. And he could see the intention behind them doing this. And he names the intention behind them doing this. Verse 9 says this. They were all trying to frighten us. And you see, at the end of the day, that's the enemy's ultimate desire to instill fear. Because you see, fear has a devastating effect in every one of us. It renders us helpless. It causes us distress. It distracts us. Fear is debilitating. And if it sets in and we actually become afraid, then we're in trouble. Nehemiah knew what Sanballat and co. were up to. He knew what they were trying to do. And so the question is, how is Nehemiah going to respond to this? They've tried to deceive him. The temptation, the pressure's relentless, it's constant. Now they're spreading rumors about him, spreading gossip about him, lies about him. 
And he can see through it, but how is he going to respond? And we're back to another major lesson from this book in this man's life and his example, the priority and place of prayer. Time and time again, Nehemiah prays. Long prayers, short prayers, arrow prayers, irrespective of his circumstances. And sometimes because of them, Nehemiah turns to and talks to God. It's a holy habit. And I'm back again at the question I've asked so many times during this series. How is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Has it been this week? This is how we respond. This is how we deal with the attacks of the enemy. The deceit. The discredit. James Greenwood was a prayer warrior, as Gordon said. I've just started to read Dirty Glory, it's a great title, by Pete Gregg. It's the latest book about the 24-7 prayer movement. And when he writes about the power of prayer, he quotes a fourth century early church father who said, The potency of prayer hath subdued the strength of fire. It hath bridled the rage of lions, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Now, I know it's tempting to read a quote like that and downplay the rhetoric. But you know something? Every one of those examples has been drawn directly from God's word. And the Bible teaches us that prayer is the most powerful transformational force in our lives, in our churches, in our nations. And it clearly was in Nehemiah's life time and time again. And I encourage and I invite us to consider what is the priority and place of prayer in my life, in your life, in the corporate life of this church. How's our prayer life? How's yours? And so as Nehemiah finds himself on the receiving end of malicious gossip and rumors and lies, he prays, and it's a one-liner. It's a brief prayer. It's a cry of the heart, but it's a great one. Now, strengthen my hands. It's just a prayer for renewed strength. And I don't know if there's anyone here this morning, and that's how you feel. I just need renewed strength, God. That's, that's maybe all you can pray, four words. God, I need you to renew my strength. But the opposition doesn't let up in Nehemiah's life. Doesn't go away. The enemy launches a third attack. From verse 10, we read how they attempt to get Nehemiah to compromise his faith. It's another standard enemy ploy. If he can get a Christian to to compromise, then you have every chance of derailing them. Some shut-in prophet and priest invites Nehemiah to hide in the temple. Because he says, men are going to kill you, Nehemiah. And he sounds so legitimate. And what he suggests seems such a good idea, but but Nehemiah sees through him. Look at verse 12. 
Nehemiah knows that Tobiah and Sanballat have hired this hitman. Look at the verse again. He had been hired to intimidate me, get this next bit, so that I would commit a sin by doing this. You see, to hide where Shemaiah suggested would have been totally wrong. It would have contravened the law of God. Back in Numbers 18, we read that anyone other than a priest who hid in the sanctuary would be put to death. Nehemiah knew that, and so he wasn't going to compromise, even though at one level and from a safety point of view, it might have been a clever thing to do. But Nehemiah was prepared to risk his life rather than go somewhere and do something that he knew was wrong. And you see, for each of us as Christian disciples and followers of Jesus and friends of God, the enemy will continually tempt us to compromise our faith. Continually. Just overstep God's word. I know you know what he has said, but you do what you want. And unless we are connected to God, unless we are properly kitted out, we risk violating our conscience, contradicting scripture, and damaging our commitment. And we all know Far too many people who've compromised their faith and have been derailed. And Nehemiah wasn't. And did you notice his response again to this third wave of attack? And I know I'm getting repetitive, but he prays. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they've done. Now, at one level, he's praying for his enemies. At another level, he's handing his enemies over to God. But he still prays for them. He boldly prays. And then we read that the wall's completed 52 days, some going, especially against the backdrop of constant opposition. And so Nehemiah's enemies tried to deceive him. They tried to trick him into coming for a chat, but had every intention of harming him. They tried to discredit him through lies, through rumor, through gossip. And they tried to derail him through compromise. But Nehemiah stands firm. He hangs in there. He completes the task. It's not only how you start that matters. It's how you finish. It also counts. James Greenwood started well. James Greenwood finished well. And for us as individuals and as a church, the enemy's tactics haven't changed. He will try to save you. He'll try to discredit you. And he'll try to derail you. And so as we close this service, I'm going to invite us to do two things. I'm going to invite you to pray for yourself. And ask God that you would not be deceived and discredited and derailed. 
And if you're not going to be, then please recognize the priority and place of prayer. And if you've gone through a week, you've gone through 24 hours without praying, take this opportunity now to do it. Pray for yourself, but I want you to do something else. As I say, I will guarantee you every single one of us here knows of someone who is under attack, who's been under attack, who has been deceived, who has been discredited, who has been or is being derailed. Pray for them. Pray for them right now. Can ask us to stand together and do that. In the silence, in the quietness, to just pray for ourselves and pray for others. And as you do that, the band are going to come back and then we'll close with one song in a moment. But let's stand together and let me invite you to pray.